Coming up on Art Palace. People will use integrity as an excuse for being turds <laughs> is the thing is they'll say like, hey, I'm just going to keep doing me and I don't have to listen. To you. I don't care if you like it. It's like, OK, then you're doing the wrong thing. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Travis McElroy, the prolific podcaster who you might know from shows like My Brother, My Brother and Me, The Adventure Zone, Schmanners, and many more. But when you get to like the difference between a $400 microphone and a $500 microphone, like you might know it. And people who listen to hours and hours and hours and hours of your stuff might know it. But like, it's not going to be a thing where someone's like, thank you. Oh, I couldn't listen to that $400 microphone. Like you don't, it's so subconscious and like you don't notice it. But like, I, I believe that like that subconscious stuff and that kind of quality change, no one will ever like tweet at you and say like, oh, it sounds so much better. Yeah. But they'll like it more and they won't know why. Yeah. They'll be like, yeah, you know, things just really started to turn around for like, I, I just felt like they really started to get it together and they won't be able to pinpoint why, but it just starts sounding better and better. And it, especially for my brother, my brother and me, we're in the, we're, we just recorded three episode 353. So like, when you're starting to put out that much content, there's lots and lots of like, I bet if you did a super cut of like one minute from each episode, from episode one till now and ran it together, it would sound like the audio quality equivalent of somebody starting at one end of a piano and running their finger down the keys <laughs> of just like, oh, it used to sound like crap. And now On the it's totally listenable. Garage band mics. Exactly. <laughs> it's so bad. When uh, did you ever have a moment uh, like that where you were just describing where you know that you've made a sort of invisible choice mm -hmm. that the audience isn't aware of, but it seems people like it. You say like, oh, people responded more. Has that ever happened in a like tangible way where you've a sort of imperceptible choice made people respond differently or? Um, yeah, it happens a lot with. So one of my shows, Trends Like These, there's a lot of interstitial music. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I just started turning them all down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's, I've never heard a review of it, but right at about the time I started doing that, our numbers started increasing like exponentially. And so I think that it was the kind of thing where it was just easier for people to re-listen to it because you yeah. didn't have a jarring like – transition where it's like oh gotta turn the radio down okay now i can yeah. turn it back up because they're back to talking and i just got the kind of uh the balance better between mm -hmm. talking and music and saw a balance in that um you know my brother my brother and me we've been improving our quality all along the way um but you know a lot of it the thing is i've been doing podcasting now for uh i think this is my seventh year yeah we started in 2010 so this would be <laughs> yes, um, about seven years now, a little over. And the thing is, it's such a slow growth medium. Unless you are already famous mm -hmm. or unless you have the next big boom podcast, 
so like for example, a good example of this is like the Adventure Zone is only a couple years old, but it's it's doing very well. It has been mm-hmm. a boom podcast. My brother, my brother, and me, we've been doing it for seven years, and like it's it's a very steady thing. And it's every every year. Like I look back and I'm like, I can't believe we're here now when we were just there last year. And then I have all these other podcasts where I look at and like day to day, if you look at it, you don't really see growth. Yeah. But you look back over a six a six month period and you're like, yeah, okay, that doesn't seem like a big growth. But if I do some math, that's like a ten percent growth month over month. That's huge. Yeah. Like, and if you keep that steady growth going, and so like, it's hard. It's always hard to tell. Like people have asked before about like when what do you think contributed to the success of my brother my brother it's like a thousand things yeah uh, this person told that because that's the other thing is it all comes down to it's nice because when you premiere a movie or a tv show you have like the opening day opening weekend like we need to build up a lot a lot of like buzz about this and get people out and it's got to do well opening weekend because very rarely, maybe this has happened before, but I imagine it's incredibly rare. Does a movie open and six months later have its biggest weekend yet? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so, whereas a podcast, you might be 200 episodes in before maybe Tom Hanks listens to an episode and tweets about <laughs> it and boom, suddenly yeah. like you're off to the races. But you can keep doing that because it costs next to nothing to keep putting out episodes. Yeah. And so if you're doing it and you this is my go to advice when people ask me for advice on starting a podcast, have conversations that you would be having anyways mm. and just record them and put them out. Yeah. Because if you're trying to create like I'm going to sit down and handcraft the perfect next big hit podcast. <laughs> like unless you work at a radio station, unless you work at like an NPR affiliate and you're building something for NPR with their resources and their whatever, you're probably not going to do that. Yeah. And so if you are trying to just make something that's popular, 10 episodes in, that's, you know, three months of work. If you're not seeing return on it, you're going to be very, very frustrated. Whereas if you and your friend always get together and talk about pro wrestling, just record that. You're going to be doing it anyways. And then, you know, if you're 50 episodes and you're a year in and you still haven't quite hit the numbers you want, what does it matter? Because you'd be having that conversation with your friend anyways. And maybe it takes like that's the thing. We didn't my brother, my brother and me didn't join a network till episode 38, I think. We didn't start the Max Fun Network. Yes, we yeah. joined MaximumFun.org, and we didn't start making. I would say I put money in quotes. We didn't start making enough money to have it feel like a successful job for like three years, four years. But at the time, that's because at no point was the objective like, well, this is our new job now. We're starting yeah. a thing, and so like if we had had that objective then we probably wouldn't still be doing it. <laughs> and now we're making a TV. Like It would have been too disheartening. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a year in, you'd be like, I don't know, like we're making $200 a month off the podcast. Yeah. And and so like, had that been the goal, like this is our new job, then we probably wouldn't still be doing it. Because here's the thing, if you look at like podcasts that people consider success, you have like two different camps. You either have the podcast where it's like hosted by somebody 
who's already famous yeah. or on a network or it's got some kind of force behind it that like, yeah, of course it's hosted by Nick Offerman. And why wouldn't that be a success? All you have to do is say, this is Nick Offerman's spot. You don't right. have to sell it at all. And then the other side is podcasts that have just been going for so long that they have been able to gain momentum and word of mouth. They also have to be good. I, I, like, it's not just like, well, if I can make it to episode 500, I'll be rich. They <laughs> yeah, have to be good. 500 episodes of garbage won't yeah, get you anywhere. Right? And that'd be good, too. But it allows time for your audience to grow your audience. Like, if you have five really good episodes and then you phone in the next 10, mm-hmm. you're going to just stop. Don't even bother. Because, like... You know, if your first five episodes are an hour where you have great guests and you talk about amazing things and then you put out five episodes that are 15 minutes long of you going, I really didn't have anything to talk about, wasn't able to get a guest. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to watch something this week, but I just didn't really get a chance to. Anyway, see you next week. Yeah. You think people are going to come back for episode 11 after that? Like, it, it's you got to constantly improve because our first like 10, 20 episodes of My Brother, My Brother, Me, the audio is garbage. Sounds so bad. And our first episode, it's unlistenable for me because now we maybe get through like three audience questions and like three Yahoo Answers questions. But in the first episode, I want to say we like sped through. We were like, oh, question, uh, next question. And we went through like 12 things. We talked about each one for like a minute. I don't even think we finished most of our thoughts. But then the (laughs) next episode was better. And then the next episode was a little bit better. Next episode was a little bit better. Um, And and we just kept at it and kept trying to be better about it, both in quality, in the quality of the discussion, but also like – our awareness of issues, the way that we handled, uh, and I don't want to say the word criticism, but feedback yeah. is like, if somebody was like, Hey, you use this word. Um, and you might not know it, but that word is not okay to use rather than like, whatever, this is our comedy <laughs> layoffs. It's just a joke. Bleh. Like we went, okay. Yeah. Noted. Thank you. We didn't, you're right. We didn't know that. And now we do. Uh, and we want you, we, it's weird because people talk about like, oh, you just do that to make your audience happy. It's like, yeah. Why, <laughs> so why is that a, why why is that a problem? Why would that what I do? And it's like, that's not pandering. Right. That's, that's, how, that's how the exchange works. It's like if my audience doesn't like a thing, I, that's not better. It's not like I, people, will, people will use integrity as an excuse for being turds is the thing is they'll say like, Hey, I'm just going to keep doing me and I don't have to listen. To you. I don't care if you like it. It's like, okay, then you're doing the wrong thing. If you don't care if your audience likes it, you're doing it bad from my point of view. So I want my audience to be happy. I'm making a thing because I want to make them happy because that's why I think the good reason for doing creative endeavors is I like making people happy. I do a lot of shows that I don't make any money off of. Some of them are weird and some of them are little just bit things that I think people will think are funny or interesting because I want to make people happy. So what kind of person would I be if somebody was like, Hey, and and they, they came to me very kindly and very informatively and said, Hey, you might not know it, but if I was like, shut up, like, what am I doing? Why am I making this thing? It's also whenever anyone's basically saying to you, Hey, you said this thing and that that hurt me. And then your response is basically like, "No, it didn't." 
Or, yeah. well, you're wrong for feeling care. that way. Right? Like, it's uh, just like, what, what does that, who is that benefiting to just basically discount somebody's feelings or just uh, pretend it's not especially real? Especially since all you really have to do is keep that in mind. Like, mm-hmm. when I get that feedback, I think that there's a thing that people, maybe, maybe, maybe this is being too gracious, but maybe it's that people are afraid that if they take all that feedback in, it's going to somehow like corrupt their ability to say something funny or interesting because now they're worried about. And the thing is, is like, that's just not how that works. Mm -hmm. Usually for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to absorb that information into my brain. And I've got all of these different processes going in the background. Mm -hmm. That's just like, it's filters. You know what I mean? It's like, I start to say something and I think, hmm, is that, hmm, is that, and that's never made my, comedy worse it's never made it worse to just not say the first thing that comes to mind (laughs) you know what i mean like there's there's an idea in improv of like a to c of like a to b is what everyone does Mm -hmm. you want to do a to c and jump over b yeah. Because that's what makes it more interesting. That's what makes it more, that's what makes it creative. Because if I say name a fruit and you say apple, okay, yeah, 90% of people are going to say apple. But if you say mango, if you say pineapple, like, okay, cool. Or if I say name a fruit and you say gummy cherries, like, oh, all right, mm, interesting. You know what I mean? And what you don't want to do is like A to four, which a lot of people do, where I say like name a fruit and someone's like, I'm going to be funny, potato. And it's like, that doesn't help me at all. You know what I mean? And so like, that's the thing is like jumping over B and getting to C is way more interesting, way more funny, way better. And a lot of B is just mean. It's really easy to me to make mean jokes. It's so easy. Like looking at someone and saying, look at that fat guy. That's like the most base, like, okay. So you just pointed out something. Mm Mm-hmm mean about someone else to try to make somebody laugh yeah that's the, any anybody could do that that's the <laughs> least interesting thing i've ever heard not only is it mean it's boring yeah when i was uh it's interesting the parallels between like comedy and art when i was in art school that i had to take a class called creative processes and i always thought like you're going to teach, especially, you know, as like an 18 year old or whatever, like you're going to teach me how to be creative, man. What are you talking about? And it was seriously one of the most helpful classes I ever took. And that was one of the lessons was basically like brainstorm a lot, write down a lot of ideas and skip those first ones because they're probably the same thing everyone else in the room came up with. It's like, ignore, it's like your first, your first instinct is probably your first instinct because it's everyone else's first instinct too. And and it, it really is like, Especially when you're young and you're like, no, no, I trust my gut. You know, it's 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 a really hard lesson, I think, to hear, but it really was helpful. And usually when I started following it and realized, oh, you know, after I get past those first few ideas, those are the ones that feel truer to me and, and sort of contain that sort of nugget. And, you know, suddenly it would click. You go, oh, that is the idea. That is the funny one. That is the best one. That is the perfect one because it was more um, specific. And it's like there's a specificity that resonates with people i think so i it also i i got my degree in acting it, people who have never acted before and never studied acting will often say it's just memorizing words <laughs> just walk across the stage that's not untrue but the thing is is the levels upon levels upon levels is like okay you walk into a room in real life and you walk into the kitchen you pour yourself a glass of water you don't have to think about why you did that you are thirsty 
you naturally grab a glass, you put some water in it, you drink it. But then add to that the level of consciously making all those decisions because a piece of paper says you need to, or a human being who's not even there anymore told you you needed to, and make that seem still on the same level as you just naturally walking. There is nothing more disconcerting than the first time you have to walk as a character in a show and figure out why you walk the way that you do, where you are going, and why you are going there, but not look like you're thinking about all of that, that you know you have to pick up that glass, because if you don't pick up that glass, the next person's line of like, what are you going to have a drink won't make any sense if you're not holding that glass but you have to do all of that what but not look like you're thinking about picking right. up the glass and like those layers to me is what i think about when like i'm doing a podcast and i'm like thinking of the next joke is like i can have all these different lines going in the back of my head and think about all of this stuff without having to script it or stop or say like, well, give me a second. I, I can come up with something. I can come up with something because like I'm working all that stuff. And I see a lot of people who say stuff and I don't, I, sometimes I feel like I'm very judgmental of, <laughs> of the people who, uh, it makes me think of like Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park of this idea of like, you stood on the shoulders of giants um, and you didn't stop to think about if you should just have thought about it if you could and you're slapping on a lunchbox and you're selling it and you're selling um, <laughs> is because I think about that because there's lots of people in the modern age now, whether it's podcasts or YouTube or Instagram or whatever, where it's these people that for reasons perhaps even unknown to them have gained a huge audience. And that's such a weird tightrope because you're doing stuff and maybe you don't know why people like it. And maybe you didn't even feel like you earned it. You don't know why you are where you are. And if that's the case, it's so easy to misstep um, because you don't have the filters. I think about this um, whenever there's somebody, a YouTuber who makes a joke that's offensive and people get very upset about it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's because a lot of professional comedians have been doing it since they were like 18 and they didn't really start to get popular until they were 40. And they stood in front of a lot of crowds of like 10 people at a coffee shop and made a joke that didn't land, maybe even got booed or had stuff thrown at them. And that was how they figured out like, this is not only my brand of comedy, but this is the stuff that is okay. Mm -hmm. This is where the line is. I found the line because I hit it when only 10 people were looking at me. But now we have, you know, YouTubers and podcasters and fill in the blank where suddenly they have millions of people looking at them and they've never failed like that in front of a small crowd. So the first time they fail big is in front of a crowd of millions of people. It's just a lot scarier if you don't have the tools, you know what I mean? And it's, I don't know. Sometimes I, I worry that like, there's just so many opportunities for people to say the wrong thing and that they, I don't know. It's very scary. I'm glad that I have the lessons that I do. But even then, even then, even then, the first couple episodes, first more than a couple, we said some things that, like I said, that people had to say like, hey, um, but once again, we failed early. Yeah. You know what I mean? We failed when our audience was just at the beginning and everybody was like, I, my expectations for you are very low because you just started and we're going to grow this thing together. We're all at the ground up. If we had waited to make those mistakes until now, 
when it's like, I know you could do better. You've done 300 plus episodes where you didn't say that stuff. I know you know better, or at the very least, you should know better, because somehow you avoided that for the first mm, whatever episodes. So it's way better to fail early, I guess is what I'm saying. My point is, fail early, fail <laughs> often, and then take take the input you get about those failures to heart, because I also imagine for every stand-up comic that I love, for every Paul F. Tompkins, who, uh, him, Paul F. Tompkins, Rhea Butcher, Cameron Esposito, uh, Ron Funches, uh, the, I, I, these are the comics I love, and they are also nice people. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that for every comic that has been had throw stuff thrown at them, whether their fault or not, and has gone, okay, I'm choosing to learn from this. There are also stand-up comics like, I'm just too edgy. You don't get me. I'm going to keep at it. And those people either continue to fail until they stop doing it, or they find an audience that likes the offensive stuff that they're saying, and they build an offensive audience that will defend the offensive stuff. And like, that's worse than failing out of it to me. I think that uh, I was just re-listening to some old episodes of WTF and I I can't now remember uh, Todd Glass was talking about um, the way that sort of instinct of like, Hey, just, you're too sensitive for me. And it's like, no, you're sensitive. Yeah. You know? And I thought, Oh gosh, that's really true. And when I think about myself um, at a younger age where basically, yeah, anytime I said something and somebody called me out on it and I would just be like, you can't handle me. And I realized like, no, I couldn't handle being called out. I couldn't handle being criticized. Well, and that's the thing is the problem is just like we talked about making your audience happy. Anytime you are trying to make a living at something, it's a business. And I have very strong feelings on like art as art and art as business and where those two interact as far as like live performance goes, because I, my friend Jeremy and I used to have, uh, not Jeremy Dubin, different Jeremy, but I'm sure Jeremy Dubin and I would also have this argument, <laughs> but uh, do, not argument, debate discussion about like theater as a business and theater as an art, because like you could do the most amazing, most challenging, most evocative and provocative like performance of a play. And if no one comes to see it, what does it matter? Yeah. And you could also do the most bland, marketable, like, you know, you're going to get put the most busted seeds version of Oklahoma mm-hmm. and make a ton of money. But are you going to feel satisfied doing it? So it's like finding the Venn diagram of like, how do I challenge, but also invite. And like the problem is, is I think there are too many people who forget that, like, if you stand up in front of people and tell jokes to make money you should be interested in what your audience thinks about it. Mm-hmm. You should be interested in the feedback that you get, because if you don't, chances are you are not going to be very successful. And maybe you'll build an audience of really offensive people who love your offensive material. But I guarantee that those people, if you really need them, are not going to be there to help you as opposed to kind people that like you <laughs> and like think you are nice and actually support you. Those people will help you if you need them. Those people will show up to your shows and you'll like being around them. And I I just so often see like this, like it was just a joke and these people don't get it. It's like, if they don't get it, you're a bad comedian. If you tell a joke and people don't get it, you told a bad joke. And this idea of like, no, it was just a bad audience. It's like, then go home. (laughs) Because if you stand, even if that's true, even if it's the least receptive audience ever and you tell a joke that doesn't land, if the only thing you walk away from that is like, well, forget them then, you know, it's like, no, you walk away from that and you go, 
next time I have an unreceptive audience, how do I win them over? Mm-hmm. How do I work harder to get them on my side? Uh, Cameron Esposito uh, has lots of stories of like this time that she um, toured opening for this comedian that could not have been more different from her. And his audience just like was not interested. But that was like her big kind of like break was opening for this guy. And it was this like proving ground of like every night trying to win over this other comedian's audience a little bit more and figure out how to not just play to your crowd, but to every crowd. And like, that is so much better than like, no, I know who my audience is and that's all I care about. It's like, okay, cool. Enjoy mediocrity then for the rest (laughs) of your life. Because if you don't challenge yourself to do better, why should I be interested in anything you have to say? Well, I'm going to, I, when you were talking a little bit about business and art, uh, that's a, actually a good transition. I would like to go look at some art with you. Okay. And, and some art that started, that has some definite like business, uh, business behind say, it. That's why I, that's so funny too. I love what you just said completely inadvertently because it made me think like, I want to go look at some art. Like there must be a more. There must be a more artistic way of saying that. I just the idea of looking at something like, hey, would you like to go to a museum and look at some art with me? It's just such a yep, that's exactly what we're gonna do. That's a very descriptive, clear, straightforward thing. I'm I'm all about that. <laughs> I looked at some art today. It's good. Yeah. And I just thought, man, man, there must be a more hoity toity way of saying it, but I well, don't want to know what it is. That's why we I would intentionally not say it if I'm, I'm, there is hoity toity ways. I, I intentionally avoid anything hoity toity. <laughs> I just like it. You want to go look at some art? I do. I do. Because that's the thing. I, I want to let me acknowledge right now. <laughs> I am not an art expert. I like looking at art. That's it. Like I will stand in front of Good. a painting for hours if, if given the choice and just look at art. And if someone's like, now let's break it down. Like, I'd rather not. Thank you very right. much. I just want to look at it and talk about it. Well, but, but that's the thing is that people have that. Everybody has an opinion about music, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I played you a pop song, you would be able to talk about what you think about it. And I think that fear of, um, of being uninformed about art keeps a lot of people from talking about it. And that's, you know, what I would love to try to see stop. I would love people to feel comfortable talking about art in the same way they talk about movies and music and everything. Cause it's kind of, to me, it's all the same stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, podcast, anything a person puts their heart and soul into and makes this thing and they put care into it. Um, there isn't a lot of difference to me. And, and I don't really personally believe in sort of high art, low art. It's just, it's all the same stuff to me. And, you know, we make those divisions a lot of times based on not so great things about class and race and all these it's other like ideas. like wine. You know yeah. what I mean? Did you drink it? <laughs> Did you like it? That's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like um, it is all the same stuff. And I feel like people can look at this stuff. And of course, just like, oh, if we're talking about that new Lady Gaga song and we have one opinion of it, and then our friend who is a, uh, you know, studied music for, for 10 years comes in, they have a different opinion about yeah. it. And and they probably know some stuff we don't know about it. And that's great, but it doesn't invalidate our opinions on it either. You know? my, my friend Tybee has point is one of her big pet peeves and it has become mine as well as we've discussed it on Interrobang, but people who treat opinions as facts. Yeah. So if you're like, I like this song, it's like, well, here's why you're wrong. It's like, you're not wrong. I just, the other day, I last night posted a picture of some eggs I made and I like my eggs fried hard. And so like, ugh, fried hard. No, you got to go over medium. It's like, it is a preference. I like my eggs fried hard. Like, (laughs) It is not, I'm not wrong. I, I, that's, uh, and like, somebody was like, no, you're like, trust me over me. It's like, 
Are you telling me how I like my eggs? Really? Really? You look at this like, mm, you're wrong. It's like, I'm the one eating them. What do you mean? Well, let's go look at some art. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Okay, well, we are in the Cincinnati wing. We're in gallery 111. And uh, so this room we call the Cincinnati Art Carved Furniture Room. Um, it, obviously, a lot of furniture around. <laughs> you have picked a very good room for me for a lot of reasons. So why, what are those reasons? Um, reason number one, I've done a lot of carpentry in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I worked uh, in my scene shop in college. Um, and then I was the technical director and master carpenter for the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. And I, uh, you know, built a lot of stage furniture there. Mm -hmm. uh, I am also a big fan of the Antiques Roadshow. Um, <laughs> so this is conjuring a lot of feelings like that for me. I also, uh, I have a lot of strong feelings about, um, uh, well, the modern furniture. And I actually had a conversation with uh, Roman Mars about this. Uh, he guested on a show I have called Surprisingly Nice. And we talked about, like, bad design that we liked. And one of them is, like, the, uh, like, Ikea, uh, you know, the, uh, the furniture of, like, the snap together, mm -hmm. anyone can do it furniture. And the thing is, on the one level, I love that furniture because it's so uh, cost-effective and anybody can do it and... There's a lot of different options, and like I've moved a bunch, and every time I do, I'm like, oh, I love that this is made out of like corkboard and you know MDF, <laughs> and I can break it down and carry it down the stairs by myself. But the thing is, nothing I own right now is going to be a thing that my children's children's yeah. children 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 whatever display. And so when I watch Antiques Roadshow, I always think the same thing, which is like, do I own? anything then in a hundred years people are like well this is a very interesting piece because no they'd be like okay this is just like a desk that costs 99 dollars at ikea but well, i don't care about this it's worth nothing now yeah um so i look at these pieces and here's what i love here's what i love about furniture art and carved furniture art is now when it's sitting up on these plinths um, and they have little labels on them and there's lights on them and everything. It's like, ah, what a beautiful art piece. Yeah. But when they existed out into the wild, somebody put their clothes in that. Mm -hmm. Somebody leaned on that mantle. Somebody slept in that bed. Somebody painted on that. Somebody, you know, displayed their books in that bookcase in their own house. And so, like, to us, it's a beautiful art piece. But to whoever owned it, it was a thing that completed their home. And you might say, well, that's true of a lot of paintings. It's true of a lot of works. It's like, yes, but also nobody opened those paintings every day to get a book out of it mm -hmm. or to put their china into it or to like get their clothes out of it. So it's not only very attractive, they're very beautiful, but it also has practicality designed into it. Um, and you have to get good as opposed to, I don't know a lot about painting, but as opposed to like brush strokes. You also have to worry about structural integrity. So it's not just like, is this pretty? It's also like, is it going to fall apart yeah. if I open the door? Yeah. Um, and well, so I, I, I gonna, have a lot of feelings about carved furniture art. I'm going to pat ourselves on the back, actually, for a little bit, because when you talked about the book, the books over here and the bookcase, that's one of my favorite things about this is that the books on the bookcase. So this belonged to 
Alfred T. Goshorn, who was the first director of the museum. Mm-hmm. And these are books from his collection. Mm-hmm. So I love that they're actually the books from the person who owned it. And it, they're all kind of period and fitting with it. So they would be books that would have been on the shelves. And not only that, oh God, this is so dorky, but <laughs> these books fit exactly. Yeah. Like they are the exact height of the shelf. Yeah. And so like there's something about that to me. That is like somebody owned it and went perfect. You know what I mean? Like this idea of like the excitement that you can imagine somebody getting when they pick up a book and go to put it in the shelf and they're like, yes, this fits part. It was made for this. And it might even have been, you know, that's the thing is like, I don't know, maybe he owned the book books first and had a bookcase commissioned to fit that book perfectly. But like, there's something about that that feels so satisfying of like, yes. Perfect. Exactly. Well, I I love also just looking at the pottery on the bookshelf too. I don't know. It's actually the, the objects on the shelf become more interesting to me than they would be if they were displayed. And, you know, a lot of this is like this middle piece, I'm pretty sure is a Rookwood uh, piece and it would, you know, we have tons of Rookwood in the next gallery over. I, I'm more excited by this, seeing it in this context and Mm -hmm. like it, it just, it's a, I don't know. Sometimes for me, when things are more like, I call it like Disneyland effect, where you're sort of creating a little miniature world for me, I get way more into it. So I like imagining this sort of environment. I think that that's it. I think a lot, a lot of times, the reason I like rooms and stuff set up in context is out of context, you look at something and you're like, "Mm, yes, that is, that is very pretty. And when you see it in context, it creates a world. Mm-hmm. It creates it. I mean, I, I've done a lot of scenic design for theater and it's one of my, I, I love, I love scenic design, but what I love more than anything is set dressing mm-hmm. because like you can build a room where it's like, yes, here's a couch and a chair and a coffee table and a bookcase and a dining room table. And it's like, okay, cool. That's great. It looks great. And then you say, and I'm going to put some coasters on the coffee table. And it's like, yes. And I'm going to put a pillow here. And maybe like there's a stain on this couch cushion. And I'm going to put some flowers in a vase on the dining room table. But the flowers are about two days too old. Mm -hmm. And in the bookcase, I'm going to put some books, but like they're on their side. Or this, this level isn't quite filled up yet. And I'm going to put something underneath it like maybe an old sock or something underneath the bookcase (laughs) and it's like yes yes because the more you do it it's just like i was talking about with audio quality people might not know that Mm -hmm. they might not look at it and say ah i like this because the remote control is under the couch instead of on the coffee table but they'll walk out being like it all just felt so real yeah felt like i was there felt like i was doing it and they don't know why but it's because in real life nothing is perfect and contextless and everything fits. So when I look at this bookcase and I say that book fits perfectly in that shelf, it makes me happy in a way that I cannot justify that. Like, I don't know why that is because there's other books and they look fine and they all match, but there's something about the fact that that book fits perfectly with about a centimeter above it. Mm -hmm. Where I'm just like, yes, there is good in the world. (laughs) Well, I think that that's a, that's a point um, that I bring up a lot with people when looking at art is trying to remind people that, you know, a person made this and a person Mm -hmm. made choices about this. So when you talk about those things that are sort of uh, look like just accidents or, or imperceptible things that sell a sort of reality, and this probably is more 
apt for paintings than necessarily furniture. But I just am always fascinated by those details that just go unnoticed or, you know, those were an intentional thing somebody did. And it's almost like the more you work at it, the the more it disappears and you don't even notice it. So, And I, I also say, and this is not a knock to painters, but I have worked <laughs> in carpentry before, so I have a little bit of insight into it. It's also very, I think, sculpture in general, but also like wood carving, so physical that it's like, I'm going to make a choice, and if you get, <laughs> and maybe this is true of paintings too, but if you get 90% of the way done and you screw up and like the piece of wood you're carving breaks, mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's done. Yeah. Okay, that fell apart. But it's also like, if you make a choice that makes a carving more intricate, it requires more physical labor from you. So it's not just an artistic choice. It is an investment of time and labor of like, I could just leave this, you know, like I could put two flowers in this instead of three, <laughs> but I think it will look better in three. And I'm willing to put in the extra 12 hours to carve that flower because I don't want it to just have two. And it's not just like, well, I'll paint it. And, oh, man, and now this sounds like I'm really knocking paint it. But just the <laughs> idea of, like, I'm going to possibly, especially when you're dealing with, like, carving utensils, hurt myself. Um, but also, like, I'm going to sweat. I'm going to labor to carve a third flower. You know what I mean? And, like, those kinds of choices to me, they, I, they just resonate um, because it's, it's that idea of like, hey, why did you do that? I'm like, I just thought it would be better. Well, like, I just liked it more. And in this gallery, nobody stopped at three flowers. So. Oh, no, there's so many flowers and birds. <laughs> this one, the bed frame. Um, okay, obviously I can't lay down on the bed. But what I do like about this <laughs> no, we, is that We did have a guard kind of go come and eyeball us too earlier. So I think they're watching as they might. I would. I would. I'm the person that if I'm in like a home goods store and their beds, I'll lay down on them. But what I love about this is that the carving arcs up over. So if you're laying down in the bed and you look up, it's all one, the headboard itself is three-dimensional, but also there is a piece above you that as you look up, you see so it's not just a piece to be observed from the outside, but that also from inside the bed, you get a view that you don't get just looking at it from outside. Yeah. So it is designed not just for the viewer, but for the user, um, which I, I really like when it comes to um, when it comes to practical like furniture art of like, yes, this is. You know, the desk is designed for somebody to actually sit at and use, and the view that you get inside of the desk, you don't get from standing over it. I wonder if even, you know, even the how three-dimensional the birds and flowers are above the, the bed, too, on that headboard, that's probably a big consideration, too, that as somebody was laying there, they would get a different view of those birds. Mm-hmm. And if it was more of just like a straight relief, um, you wouldn't have that as much. Whereas there, they actually maybe have that sense of these birds flying over them. So there was actually another reason I, I wanted to come in here. And this bed is, is one of those is that this is a piece that was worked on by a family Mm -hmm. together. So, um, uh, Ben Pittman was the designer and his wife was the carver. Excellent. And then her sister, um, Elizabeth Nurse, who's kind of one of Cincinnati's most celebrated painters, did the details on the the headboard there, the paintings. And the they're, it's the same team that worked on the dresser right there with the paintings as well. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I just kind of like that idea of this collaborative affair that a, a family worked on together. Well, are you referencing that? Because I do a lot of my shows with my family. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I have shows that I do with friends, um, but most of my shows are with my family. And there is a certain amount of, well, and there's a couple of reasons. One, when you do something, uh, at least, okay, not for everybody, but for me, I, I really like my family and I like spending time with them. And for me, family is very important. So when I look back at something that's created by family, it's not just an investment of art, but it's something that like we as a unit completed. But it is also, I think, in collaboration with family, you're just able to be a little bit more direct and a little bit more blunt, but also not have to say some things, which is like, I, for example, my brothers and I, we've, you know, worked on the show for, together for a long time. At this point, I trust their judgment in any kind of negotiation or working on anything. Or if they're like, hey, I think we should cut this. I'm like, okay. Um, because I trust them and I trust their judgment. And I trust uh, their creative visions and artistic thing in a way that someone who maybe I've only known for two months I definitely wouldn't feel yeah. that way with. So, yes, I, I do uh, appreciate working with family. Um, and and I think I think you get a better end result. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's not true. As I said, with my family, it's just we've always kind of collaborated on stuff. And we've, you know, worked on different projects together all our lives. And so um, you just end up with a stronger collaboration. That said, I also... Love the shows that I do with my friends. So maybe it's just, I'm a really good collaborator. No, <laughs> You're just so great it. at working with people. No, I just bring in really great people and then just <laughs> grab their coattails and ride them forever. <laughs> well, another thing to kind of note about a lot of the furniture in this room that I think maybe would surprise some people today. I don't know. It's all fake. It's all, it's it's all, all made of cardboard. Yep. It's all surprise. That's the big trick. Uh, <laughs> no, that the, um, I think we think of wood carving as this very like macho act and pretty much everything in here was carved by women. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, y'all. When I worked at the theater, if I needed a detail piece done, my wife came in and did it because, <laughs> because, well, you know, here's the thing. I won't speak in gender normative terms because I don't know. I have found in my working with my wife in our specific me and her relationship I like getting things done. And the way I look at it, it's like, okay, I want to mark stuff off the list. I want to, f I like finishing things mm -hmm. and she likes getting things right. Yeah. And so she like, <laughs> this is the dumb, oh man, I was done listening to this. Uh, the other day, <laughs> like we were picking out a high chair for our baby and she spent two and a half hours researching and picking the right high chair as I was sitting next to her, losing my mind. Just like, just buy one. Yeah. She's a high chair. It's fine. It's fine, just buy one. And she wanted to get the right one. Perfect. And I think that that is, if I were um, building a carved bed with my wife, I would let her do most of the actual, like, most of the actual, like, art making. Like, I'm perfectly fine building a thing, but if I want it to look good when it's done, I let my wife finish it. Well, that's actually, I'm pretty sure it was this, this beardy gentleman on the wall over here. Um, I think it was either him or his son who basically said the exact same thing that, and again, sorry to be all men are from Mars, women are from Venus here, but that uh, they felt at the time that women had better attention to detail. 
and that they could they would were better at carving these kind of detailed things than men were. So that was sort of their view on it from the 19th century. You know, I, I, I'm willing to bet that there's something less inherent about that and more just like the stuff that we expect from the different genders throughout blah, blah, blah. Yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, totally. You know, and, and God, there's so much to say about that that I'm not going to. But this idea of the expectation of like, well, men, we're going to teach you how to swing an axe. And yeah. ladies, we're going to teach you how to season a dish. Yeah. And like, the, and I am not, in, listen, hi, this is Travis McGray. I'm not endorsing that at all. Right. I'm saying that that is unfortunately societally so much more than like, hey, what do you want to do? Great, let's do it. Um, then I think that there is a lot of stuff like that where it's like, you're just, trained differently from birth to worry about different things. Yeah, even even the the fact that they were carving these things isn't necessarily a sign of like true progression in, in a way of like, oh, look at this. They they but it also had a lot to do with that anything basically seen as domestic mm-hmm. was seen as woman's work. So even if it came down to like carving furniture that that was sort of the realm of what women did. So there's also that, that it was seen as more domestic. Now um, tell me about who carved this Samsung TV here. This Samsung TV was uh, carved by Emma Bepler. and <laughs> She did a great job. It looks yeah. just like a Samsung TV. I and she, was, she died Passing. in 1947. How'd she make? She designed the modern day flat screen TV. No, I assume that's some kind of display. Yeah, yeah. I didn't turn it on so we wouldn't have like a racket. Uh-oh. You're oh, I got caught on a chair. <laughs> I would like to look at this table because I've been eyeballing it the whole time. Yes, it's especially when you kind of want to get up uh, close yeah. to Oh, yes. As I was close, hoping there would be as inlay. As close as you're allowed to be, I should say. I love inlay. Yeah. That green in there is like yeah. so intense. Here's the thing. Once again, I love subtle things that complete a thing where it's like, I think that that's what makes a lot of artists um, so much smarter, or like better. What's the difference between something I could draw if I worked really hard versus somebody who was born to do it? Mm-hmm. And the difference is I could work really hard and I could draw well. I, if I trained really hard, I think I could draw something reasonable where you'd be like, I know exactly what that is. That looks exactly like the thing. But the difference is somebody who's born to do it, it's like, it needs this. It's like, oh, <laughs> only now. Do I so like that green ring really stands out and it's so beautiful. I wouldn't have thought to put that out. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, it's like that kind of little anomaly that just sort of adds that special little sparkle to it. It's stuff that just like jumps out. I mean, that's how I feel. I, I feel that way whenever like I hear um, like a really great musical or mm-hmm. music where I'm just like, okay, maybe if I trained to do, because that's the thing is I think a lot of people will have this thought of like, well, yeah, if I worked all my life to learn it, if I had trained to play cello forever, I could have done that too. And it's like, could you, <laughs> could you do a facsimile of that? But you wouldn't have the thing where it's like, okay, but could you have thought to do that thing different that they did? And it's like, well, no, yeah. like I could play it. Like the thing is, Lin-Manuel Miranda is not Lin-Manuel Miranda because he trained really hard at it and learned by It's because he has thought processes that make him think differently about the things. And it's the same, you know, there's just so many skills. There are lots of skills you can teach, but, like, you can't really teach creativity in that way. And so I, I look at this stuff and it's like, I could design a bookcase, I could design a bed. I could like make a bed that looks like a bed. Mm-hmm. Would I sit there and be like, it needs eight birds. 
<laughs> if it's seven birds, it's going to look incomplete. And, you know, maybe I'd make a bed with seven birds, and I'm like, this is fine. And everyone's like, yeah, this is fine. But if I had had that eighth bird on there, and that sounds silly, and, like, I'm saying it out loud, and it sounds like I'm making a joke, but if I'd had that eighth bird on there, that it was the thing that makes people step back and, like, this makes me feel good. Look, it feels complete. It feels done. You did it. Well, it's, it's also, it's like we were talking about, like, the, the eighth bird or the green circle that, or even... Lin-Manuel Miranda, like I'm thinking of those things that pop out mm-hmm. that are out sort of a little bit unexpected and that's what sort of makes them special, you know? Yeah. So it, it, you know, for me, when I'm just thinking about Hamilton, it's like, it's in the Schuyler sisters, the way like, and Peggy is like slightly off beat, yeah. you know, that just makes it pop for me and makes me think like, Oh, that's so funny. It's like, you know, she's extra. She doesn't matter in this song. And it's kind of like making a big joke of it, but it's that like doing something just a little bit wrong. Well, that's the too. thing in the, in the opening number of Hamilton, Hey, let's talk about Hamilton for another two hours. In the opening number, <laughs> I'll, I'll mention it. I'll, I'll hashtag Hamilton in this, and we'll have the yeah, most listens I've ever. Had. When in the opening number, the the line uh, "Take your time" and it hits this really interesting, like kind of chord thing. Like my wife, who was a musical theater major, I listened to that like ten times, and finally I looked at her and I was like, "Hey, why do I like that? Why mm-hmm. does that sound good?" And she was like, "Oh, well, it's this resolution. And it's this thing." And it was like what I. She, she gave me a great explanation two years ago that now I can't remember. <laughs> but it was like, oh, it's because it's this and this and this. But all I knew was when that progression of notes hit, I like it. Yeah. And I enjoy it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, that's how I kind of feel about music too, is like, I'm kind of happy to sort of not totally understand it because it still is a little bit magic, but it is, it is fun when you, somebody can explain that to you. Like, oh, here's what, this is how this works. Yes. I agree with that. That's also <laughs> what I like about it. You know, one of my favorite things too, and I, I just love that with really well polished, well stained wood, when mm. you can't tell the difference between the metal fixtures and the wood, yeah, makes me really happy, and I don't know why. Yeah, and you're you're kind of looking at the the corner cupboard here when yeah. you're saying that. Yeah, it's yeah. like if you told me. It's all wood, I would believe you. But I'm looking at like screws and hinges and stuff where I'm mm-hmm. like, and that's metal, but like it's like seamless. Yeah. It's just it's all of a piece. But then compare that to the fixtures on this dresser over here, uh, where or vanity, where the fixtures are like bright gold. I also like that. But it, again, there's almost like a functional reason too. You want people to see that because that's the part that they grab and pull. So yeah. it, it's kind of, it, it's practical as well that here, the, those hinges and things don't, you don't really need anyone to grab it. So you don't need them to see it. This cupboard is a little mysterious how you actually would open it in general. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also looking at the table, the green circle table. If you told me that was iron, I'd believe you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's got the, but it says it's ebonized white oak. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Yep. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing now that I'm, I keep looking at this cupboard now, like that. I guess it's one of those things that just opens by the key. Like you have yes. to turn it, and then that opens because there's no real handles or anything to open it. Well, this is also fun because I can't tell which door overlaps the other one. Yeah. Yeah. That center bar, you can't really see which side it's a part of. Well, here's the thing. I also think anybody who, as a kid, read, like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, yeah. or Indian in the Cupboard, or anything that had to do with, like, magical furniture pieces, <laughs> you see stuff like this, and you're like, 
I just want to get in there. I want to get like, I'm looking at this and all I want to do is get inside of it. Well, these, um, and I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to. No, no. Okay. That, that is frowned upon. Yes. But fair enough. Yeah. The, the, on the cover or on the cover, the, the doors here, you have Freya and Thor. And so I think that also adds to that kind of Narnia feeling of like, yes. I'm going to go into a magical land where Norse yeah. gods live. Just right. have to go through this cupboard. I appreciate all of these, all of these artworks. I also like it has a roof. Like I, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like a slanted roof that it absolutely positively does not need no. to be a finished piece, except it's better that it does. Yeah. Yeah. Any other pieces you want to talk about in here? Um, anything else catch your fancy? Kind of hit almost everything, didn't we? I, one little thing. I like that this is asymmetrical, both in like oh, yeah. the shelves and the drawers, but also the carvings on the doors mm -hmm. and the top centerpiece. It's asymmetrical. It's just, it, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, in the on the top one, too, I like how the, the one that's a little fuller has the emptier side, so it's sort of a sense of balance. You know, mm -hmm. you have this one that's a little less complete, but then it's balanced out by the, the three drawers on the side. But not, not only that, okay, now I'm looking at all the asymmetry. There's, uh, like, a knob on the top front there, not there. Oh, yeah. There's spiral carved in there where it's more of like a leaf lattice carved into that side. Yeah. Um, even the bottom ones are different pieces with different flowers and different arrangements of them. The top piece is asymmetrical as the vine is growing. Um, and just like look at the, the top, the um, insignia there has one crossed piece of wheat or mm -hmm. a thistle or something like that instead of two crossed pieces. So it's just, it's it's asymmetrical kind of, start to finish yeah um in a way that you don't normally see in carved furniture i'm looking around the room trying to see if there's anything else that jumps out at me i mean unless it's a piece like the birds yeah but most of it is very like balanced one side or the other but on this one it's it's much more of like no i wanted nature and nature is not balanced so that's what i did yeah um and i just i just love that as artistic choices of like no i'm building a piece I don't want someone to be able to recreate it. Yeah. Anyways, that just jumped out. I like, I like the asymmetry in it. Yeah. It's very balanced asymmetry, too. Like, it doesn't feel weird. But it's also like, okay, this is little. But, like, this shelf mm -hmm. is, like, centimeter, half an inch higher than the other side. So, like, right. it's not a straight line across. And that shelf, the taller shelf is thinner. And the lower shelf is thicker. And so it feels balanced, even though it's asymmetrical. So it's like balanced asymmetry. Yeah. It's just very, very, I like that as a design choice. It makes it more interesting while still feeling of a piece and feeling like it all makes sense. I agree. Yeah, you're noticing stuff I've never noticed. <laughs> well, like I said, I like, I like woodwork. I like carpentry. Yeah. I like furniture. Yeah. So I just get to take one of these home with me now? That's, or the, how's that's that the rules. That's how the game works. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to take the uh, Thor cabinet then. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. we'll have our boys pack it up for okay, you. Okay, great. Thank we'll, you. Uh, just pick it up in the loading dock. You, Terrific. Yeah, Perfect. Roll your will car it fit, around. Will it fit in my hatchback? <laughs> yeah, I think great. so. Awesome. I mean, they could probably tie it to the roof if not. Excellent. Excellent. Maybe a tarp or something, but maybe it's a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Travis, for, for looking at some art with me. Well, thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. 
Special exhibitions on view right now are William Kentridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, Tiffany Glass, Painting with Color and Light, The Poetry of Place, William Clift, Linda Connor, and Michael Kenna. And it's the final days to see Dress to Kill, Japanese Arms and Armor, and Transcending Reality, The Woodcuts of Kosaka Gajin. May 7th is their final day, and if you want to come celebrate Japanese culture with your family, visit us on May 6th from 12 to 4 p.m. for Family First Saturday. We'll have special art projects, performances, and more at this free museum-wide event. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Maybe this is one of your first episodes and you liked it? Let others know. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>